it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. It is Thursday. Thanks so much for being here. 1 866 408 7669. We have a, a big show coming your way. Uh, so much going on, especially considering what's going on yesterday. Uh, and of course, 2024 is always here. Things were always happening. Ainsley was able to sit down with the DeSantis's, Mr. and Mrs. Iran and his wife. And I'll tell you, could not be more impressed. Well, I mean, in terms of their relationship, I, I just laugh when people try to uh, touch her or mock him and say he's cold and uh, she's a Karen. It's a joke uh, in my view. But we'll have more on that. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Jason Aldean stands strong, sales soar, and heat intensifies over his new song depicting life in a small town instead of a big town where, I don't know, there's a lot of crime. We'll talk about it. Number two. No bail at all. That's what Illinois is doing when it comes to criminals. So you commit a crime. When we get to you, we get to you. Meanwhile, go have fun. It's really worked out well in New York. Governor Pritzker considers himself a presidential pretender or contender. Should Joe Biden bow out or in the future? Does he think that's going to get him to the White House? Think again. Number one. Explosive and illuminating. That's how I describe the revelations from two IRS whistleblowers as we hear the facts, the special treatment of the entire Biden family and how many millions were made and to this day is missing. And I keep going back when I was watching these hearings yesterday and rewatching them this morning and then over, by the way, six hours. And when Democrats talked, they were just filibustering outside Dan Goldman and Jamie Raskin, who was trying to diminish them and they failed spectacularly. Six hours. How do you knock it down when it means so much? Not in the past. It's not Watergate. It's not Whitewater. It's not Monica Lewinsky. You know, it's, you know, we're not talking about past scandals. We're talking about something that's unfolding before our eyes that could influence policy in the United States of America. And my goodness, enough with stop picking on the crack addict who loved hookers, sexually addicted too. We're talking about high-wire business deals using family influence, American influence, and possible policy, feathering the nest, pouring money into the Biden family. And I just think about Joe Biden when asked about this. He turned around one day and said, oh, yeah, if all this is true, where's the money? He laughed and kept walking, knowing on some level that was one of the stupidest things you could have said because the IRS knows where the money is. And this guy, Joseph Ziegler, who came out and said, listen, I'm gay, married to a man and a Democrat. If anyone thinks I got an agenda, please find it for me. And Gary Shapley, who we met a couple of weeks ago with Brett Baer and other places, CBS, who told his story in frustration of investigating in great detail Hunter Biden's lack of payment when it came to taxes and illegal returns. And could not believe the deal that was finally cut by David Weiss. So here is Joseph Ziegler. On why he came forward, no longer anonymous, cut one. Hunter Biden allegedly falsely claimed business deductions for for payments made to the Chateau Marmont, a hotel room for his supposed drug dealer, sex club memberships, 
falsely referenced on the wire as a golf membership, hotels he was blacklisted from, and a Columbia University tuition payment for his adult daughter. All of these items were used to support willfulness, the willfulness element for felony tax evasion. These false deductions claimed by Hunter Biden caused a false return to be prepared that underreported his total income by approximately $267,000 and a loss to the U.S. Treasury of $106,000. Ziegler went on. I know you heard from Chaplin. I'll hear from him later in the hour and, and uh, with our guests. And by the way, next is going to be Greg Mitchell, author of Beginning of the End, a Beginning or the End of this movie about Oppenheimer. But I want you to hear a little bit of Ziegler. James Comer's asking the questions. Cut three. Approximate total transfers from the Romania company would have been $3.1 million to everyone. How much did Hunter Biden and his business associates receive from State Energy HK Limited through the Robinson Walker LLC? $3 million. The total transfers from Hudson West 3 to everyone was $3.7 million. Burisma paid to everyone involved $6.5 million. Burisma also paid Blue Star Strategies and a law firm hundreds of thousands of dollars, bringing the total Burisma payments to over $7 million. Is, is that correct? That is correct, $7.3 million. Between 2014 and 2019, this brings the total amount of foreign income streams received to approximately $17 million, correct? That is correct. Where is the money? Joe wants to know. We want to know, Joe, where is the money? Where is it scattered throughout the Biden family? Forget about taxes, which is absolutely Joe Biden should be forbidden to berate any more people for allegedly not paying enough percentage of their wealth. Brian Kilme, Greg Mitchell next. You're going to love his story about Oppenheimer. He's an expert in the area, uh, and he'll talk about the movie. Don't move. It's Brian Kilmeade. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. This is a national emergency. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means if the Nazis have a bomb. We have a 12 month head start. 18. How could you possibly know that? We've got one hope. All America's industrial mind and scientific innovation connected here. Secret laboratory. Keep everyone there until it's done. Let's go recruit some scientists. Build a town, build it fast. We don't let scientists bring their families. We'll never get the best. Why would we go to the middle of nowhere for who knows how long? Why? Why? How about because this is the most important thing that ever happened in the history of the world? You're the great improviser, but this you can't do in your head. Are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Chances are near zero. Near zero. What do you want for theory alone? Zero would be nice. Yeah, well, that is Oppenheimer. It's likely to be a huge hit. And there's not many movies rolling out now because of the strike anyway. Uh, and guess what? Uh, Robert Oppenheimer really lived a real person. What he happened after him is almost as fascinating as what went into the creation of the atom bomb, how they recruited him and chose him to head up an operation that really gave birth to an entire city. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of families, and resulted in us beating Hitler to the atom bomb, dropping it on uh, Japan, and the world changed. Greg Mitchell is the author of The Beginning or the End. He talks about Oppenheimer in his book. Greg, welcome uh, to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, thank you. Happy to be here. Greg, what do you think uh, this movie will do for books like yours and for uh, <laughs> Robert 
uh, and for Robert uh, Oppenheimer's legacy specifically? Well, I, I probably what it does for my book is not as important as what what happens in the future uh, with any dangers from nuclear weapons. You know, my book, uh, the beginning or the end, uh, explores the MGM movie, the first atomic bomb movie in 1946, in which Oppenheimer played a role and actually had kind of a disgraceful role in, in how that came to the screen. But in terms of this new Christopher Nolan movie, which I've, I've seen, uh, it will be interesting uh, what it produces in viewers because it is a three-hour movie. Uh, it has, of course, a lot of stars, but it's, it is sort of dialogue-heavy with incredible technical details as well. And uh, there will be a lot of younger people uh, who will be coming upon not only Oppenheimer but the creation of the bomb and the decision to use the bomb and what happened afterwards – uh, who have not been exposed to this much in the past, and it will be interesting what their reaction is. I mean, I've been writing about this for 40 years, and, uh, of course, I'm very much embedded in it and have a long background in it, but most people who see the film will be coming to this for the first or second or third time. The first time I heard about the movie, and I'm going to be interviewing Christopher Nolan, the first time I heard about the movie, I thought, oh, my goodness, what is Hollywood going to do to it? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't care if it make them look good or bad. I just want it to be, even though you got to sell a movie and dramatize it, you can't be inaccurate about things that matter so much. Did that concern you? And did he pull off enough that won't do what happened with JFK and Oliver Stone that made <laughs> everybody not trust anything about right. any investigation ever? No, I, I, I'm happy to say uh, that uh, Nolan based his uh, based his movie on a book by two friends of mine, Kai Bird and. Martin Sherwin, who won a Pulitzer Prize for their biography of Oppenheimer, and actually Nolan uh, went by this bio uh, very carefully. I, I think I think there are some problems with the movie, but I think accuracy uh, is uh, you know is really quite quite good in it, and it doesn't really deal in you know conspiracy theories or anything like that. So. I don't think it's like JFK at all in that. Now, people may watch the movie and have different views of it or disagree with the whatever the focus or what what seems to be the the message. Uh, but I think in terms of accuracy, I think uh, I, I think, again, as someone who's written about this and and knows the history of Hollywood movies, you know, like I said, my book, uh, The Beginning or the End, goes back to the first movie. And the there's been a few since then, so I really know the the Hollywood history, and I have to say this is a, this is quite an accurate movie. So why should people care? Could you give people an idea who who Robert Oppenheimer was? Well, he he's a fascinating figure, uh, no matter what you think of the bomb or what 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 we did with it. But you know, it, I mean, in a nutshell, basically, he was a, a tremendously a tremendous genius who was was somehow was hired to by General Leslie Groves, who was a you know a true conservative, uh, to head the Manhattan Project. Even though he knew that Oppenheimer had communist associations in the 1930s, his brother was a communist, his wife was an ex-communist, his girlfriend was a communist, uh, and yet he was hired to run this project and trusted. And of course, he did pull off the technical achievement. But what happened afterwards was when we got into uh, 1950 and Joe McCarthy and uh, all those concerns, uh, he was then brought up. Uh, he lost his security clearance, a very famous hearing in 1954 where the, this man who invented the atomic bomb for America was uh, denied his security clearance and basically uh, ended his career as a public uh, figure or as a public someone who had much to say about uh, nuclear policy.
Dies of cancer. He smoked a lot, right? He is, <laughs> yes, yes. So, so as you'll see, as you'll see in the movie. Yeah. So he, you know, he had some some type of vice, but he was also unbelievably dedicated and smart. And then the the founding of Los Alamos, I found fascinating. I mean, this is a whole town. It, did it come about? And tell me if I'm wrong. Obviously, don't hesitate. Uh, you're the expert. But is it true that he was sick? His dad sent him out to the desert. He fell in love with it. And is that how Los Alamos got chosen? Well, yes. He uh, oddly, uh, people would think of him as this, uh, this Berkeley or Princeton intellectual scientist. But uh, as a young man, uh, he spent a lot of time in New Mexico riding horses. And uh, and so when the, the thought came up, where are we going to put this remote uh, super uh, facility? Uh, he immediately thought, well, how can I combine my love for for New Mexico and horses with uh, uh, with building the bomb, and so it ended up in Los Alamos. They built not only that as a secret city, but others, Oak Ridge and Hanford, and they, you probably know a lot of this uh, incredible mass. I mean, the Manhattan Project. They're, they're never anything like it, that's for sure. Uh, all across the country, just a massive enterprise. But the movie does focus on uh, what happened at Los Alamos and then what what happened afterward. But there was a sense that he was racing against Hitler, right? Uh, that we were oh, ahead, but barely. Uh, that was the and uh, you know the, the most of the key scientists, in fact, were refugees from Hitler, which is how Hitler blew it. A lot uh, of them Hitler Jewish had, too, right? Yeah, Hitler had a head start on building the bomb, and he lost it because of whatever you want to say, anti-Semitism or wanting to get rid of all the Jews. So these brilliant Jewish scientists. Uh, fled to the U.S., and Oppenheimer made use of them. And uh, basically that's why we beat uh, Germany to the bomb. And if the way it's laid out, and I've watched a few documentaries just to get ready for the movie, the way it was laid out, I mean, it's no question that we were going to, if we had to invade Japan, after you know Germany falls, you guys are still working, and they're still working on the bomb. Right. So Germany falls, you got it, uh, and the European theater becomes free, okay, for temporarily, and the Cold War happens. But right. Japan is still active, and they're not going to surrender. And the debate on should we show Japan what we have before we drop it on them was real. I always thought right. that was a myth. That was real. And then the fact is, after the first bomb, you would think that Japan would say, of course we surrender. But they had to drop another, which I think was slightly different and more powerful. Yeah, the plutonium bomb was used against Nagasaki. You know, there's a great been a great debate about this. Uh, you and I may disagree on this question uh, on the uh, decision to drop the bomb. But sticking to the movie, uh, Oppenheimer, uh, the Oppenheimer film basically shows him uh, expressing a lot of regrets afterwards, and uh, as he did in real life. But as in real life, he's kind of all over the map. He kind of wants takes pride in having created the weapon yet seems to have some regrets about using it. Uh, it's a little hard to tell. I think it's a weakness in the movie in a way that uh, it does, as you said, uh, it does show the military people and people saying we need to drop the bomb because Japan won't surrender. Again, I, I kind of disagree with that, but they present that fully. And then Oppenheimer, afterwards, he has all these regrets, and you really don't say, well, what are his regrets based on? Uh, there may be reason for regrets, but what is it really based on? And and so people will come away from the movie sort of feeling, well, there's something wrong. There was something wrong about the decision to use the bomb, maybe, but I, I don't really know why. And uh, but the movie does end uh, with a strong 
plea, let's say at the end, about future dangers, about the, today's nuclear uh, threats. And uh, so it, it certainly does, uh, I, I would say the movie is much more concerned with uh, future use of the bomb than the past use. And whether that's right or not, I don't know. But it, 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 is, it does offer profound message and emotions at the end, which, you know, which I support. And, uh, you know, just going back to, uh, you know, my book, The Beginning or the End, and that very first MGM movie, it did none of that. That MGM movie was, you know, pure propaganda. Uh, Truman and the Pentagon had intervened to make this movie uh, really nothing more than, than uh, government propaganda, really. And that's the story I tell in my book. And fortunately, the Nolan movie is 100 times better. Ayn Rand uh, wrote that movie that you write about? No, she actually wrote uh, Rival. Uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating story also in my book, which is that in, in 1946, both MGM and Paramount raced to be uh, make the first A-bomb movie. And uh, Ayn Rand wrote uh, a screenplay, was hired by Paramount to write a screenplay for the, the second movie. And uh, I've seen the script, I've seen the correspondence, uh, and I write about it. Uh, and uh, Paramount decided to drop out after a while. And so they left the field to MGM and Ayn Rand went back and wrote a little book called Atlas Rugged. I heard about that. Uh, Greg Mitchell, <laughs> our guest. And Greg, before I let you go, um, I, there's no if Japan doesn't surrender and we had to do another invasion like D-Day, don't you think we lose tens of thousands of Americans? Uh, boy, that's a that's a half hour discussion, not sixty seconds. But uh, you know, the fact is, we weren't going to. Uh, there was no plans for an invasion by December. There's no question. If we'd had to invade, it would have been very bloody. We would have had countless casualties. I certainly agree with all that. But you know, the bomb was used in early August, and the fact is, there's no way that Truman would have ever uh, ever had to invade once we had tested the bomb. Uh, he w he had the option of waiting a bit. A few days, you know, a couple of weeks, or and and then dropping what could have been numerous bombs, which we would have had, or using the bomb as soon as possible before Russia got into the war. And he chose the, you know, he chose chose the latter. And uh, you know, no one knows what would have happened if if he had waited a short while for Russia to enter the war and uh, allowed Japan to keep its emperor, um, you know, which they did anyway. Uh, so, I mean, it's a great historical question uh, that's been debated for decades. Uh, I know there's great arguments, and, uh, you know, like I said, we're not going to settle this today. But uh, I, I'm more interested in the how the Nolan movie handles it and, and even how that first MGM movie handled it. Oppenheimer, the name of the movie, uh, your book, The Beginning or the End. Greg Mitchell, thanks so much for the insight. Sure. It's going to be a Thank public you. fascination, something that's been fascinating you for decades. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, back in a moment, you listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. His mouth to your ears. It's Brian Kilmeade. When the president travels on Air Force One, he usually uses these big stairs. It's probably the, the shot that most viewers are familiar with, with the president descending from Air Force One, 30-something steps. More recently, President Biden has started to use the smaller set of stairs that come out from the belly of Air Force One. It is a small, small thing that the president is doing, but it's yet another example of how the White House and his team around him are trying to adjust things to accommodate for his age and really limit any sort of situation where that 
that his age might be on full display. We've seen the president, you know, trip up those stairs, but they don't want to put him in any situation where he's going to draw even more attention to his age, which continues to be a major vulnerability for the president in polling. And that, of course, is uh, more accommodations, more inside information. I believe it was Politico uh, talking about what they're doing for Donald uh, to doing for Joe Biden. I mean, be totally candid. You're 80 years old. You're as fragile as him. One fall. Forget about being president. What about his health? That was Laura Egan of MSNBC talking about what Politico uh, is reporting. Uh, she's a Politico White House reporter uh, joining us now to discuss this and more. Uh, is Mark Thiessen. Mark, I, I do want to build on what that soundbite does, but I also want to talk about RFK's opening statement now. He is fuming. They were trying to rip him, cut him to five minutes. He's opening remarks. He's talking about being censored, the first one censored two days into the Biden administration. All he was talking about then it was candidacy. They censored the whole thing. Nothing to do with vaccines or anything else. Uh, and, of course, Democrats don't want him there. Yeah, no, they, they don't want him there. They don't want him challenging Joe Biden. Uh, you know, inter-democratic inter- party feud, obviously. But he's, you know, look, if, they, if you, there's, the polling shows that Joe Biden has about 63% of support among, among Democrats. He's got about 20, and, uh, and, and Marianne Williamson has about 10. So you've got a third of Democrats who are backing uh, somebody else uh, against the sitting president of the United States. And, they, and this isn't even a credible candidate. I mean, it's you know, this. I mean, he's got a famous name, but he he's never held elective office before. He's no, he's not like you know, he's in the Kennedy family, you know, senators and and governors and all the rest of it. It's like he's he's not really a serious candidate, and yet he's doing so well against Biden. It just shows how weak Joe Biden is. And he also talked about it, it, this being an embarrassment. The censorship would be embarrassed to embarrassment to his dad, his family, Harry Truman. Uh, also, he's fighting for uh, what he says is anti – they're accusing him to be anti-Semitic. So he's going to bat there, and he called out the ranking member. We'll discuss that. First yeah. off, uh, before we get into detail, how um, how convinced are you that Joe Biden is running today as he goes to Philadelphia to talk about Bidenomics? Do you, you think it's all, all systems go? Oh, he's running. I mean, you know, the the, the reality is, is that he's – uh, you know, they, they, there's a reason why Joe Biden is president of the United States today. It's because the Democrats didn't have anybody else that they thought they could elect. Right? He was the least worst candidate. That's why he won the nomination to begin with, and he's still the least worst candidate for them. I mean, you know, it, the, the the problem is is that just look at how much he's declined in the past 16 months. I mean, you know, normally, you know, I remember when I worked in the Bush administration, you look at a picture at the end of the presidency after eight years, they show a picture of the president today and how young and vigorous he looked eight years ago. The job, the job in and of itself wears anybody down, right? Um, he's declined eight years worth in 16 months. What's he going to look like 16 months from now? You know, I saw Nancy Pelosi the other day. She was being interviewed, and she's like, "Well, you know, he's I, I, he's doing a great job, and he's he's uh, I'm older than he is." I was like, "Well, yeah. I mean, if Nancy, if he was as vigorous and and sharp as Nancy Pelosi, uh, nobody would have a problem. It's not an issue of age. There's lots of eighty year olds who could who could do the job. It's he's an old eighty. He's a, he's a declining eighty. You know, he's sitting there, he's sitting there with the president of Israel and like mumbling into his chest, unintelligibly." I challenge anyone to give me a. I'd love to see the transcript of that meeting and how they how they ungarbled that. You know, he's he's just he's not there. Uh, and he's not capable of doing the job. 
And and so, you know, that's going to become more and more apparent, you know, 16 months from now. And here's the fascinating question for me, Brian, is like, so I I predict that he will try to let's let's say it's Trump is the nominee. Right. I, I predict he'll try to come up with some excuse not to debate. Right. But what if there's a third party candidate in there? What if Joe Manchin is, is, is running on the no label ticket? Is is Biden going to uh, run, you know, let let Trump and Manchin debate? and not be on the stage? Or is he going to go on the stage with the two of them? And everybody's going to look at that and say, there's Joe Manchin, vigorous, young, you know, that, you know, that Trump, vigorous, uh, that, and, and Joe Man- and, and Biden, you know, standing there, you know, with his drool cup uh, on the third podium. It's going to become a Trump-Manchin race. The Democrats are in danger of becoming the third party <laughs> under him uh, well, if he's the nominee. Well, I mean, you got 25 percent of the country's Democrats, 23 percent of Republicans, and the rest is going to – whoever the rest votes for will win. So I want to talk about those, those hearings yesterday, not covered by the other news networks, not covered by the major networks, but it uh, doesn't matter. This thing is so explosive and so real. Uh, to give you an idea, uh, you have Joseph Ziegler who is uh, comes out and says, I'm a Democrat. By the way, I'm gay. Um, and – I'm a whistleblower for the first time in my 13-year career, and Gary Shapley was his supervisor. And Ziegler worked on the Hunter Biden case, and all the roadblocks that he outlined were absolutely astounding, even by the most cynical, partisan person out there. Here's a little of what Ziegler said. Cut five. Approximate total transfers from the Romania company would have been $3.1 million to everyone. How much did Hunter Biden and his business associates receive from State Energy HK Limited through the Robinson Walker LLC? $3 million. The total transfers from Hudson West 3 to everyone was $3.7 million. Burisma paid to everyone involved $6.5 million. Burisma also paid Blue Star Strategies and a law firm hundreds of thousands of dollars, bringing the total Burisma payments to over $7 million. Is, is that correct? That is correct, $7.3 million. Between 2014 and 2019, this brings the total amount of foreign income streams received to approximately $17 million, correct? That is correct. Where is that money? Was that ever declared? Why couldn't they follow that through? And why couldn't they investigate the rest of the family? They were told it would take too many approvals, so don't worry about it. Don't touch the laptop. We're going to tip off before the storage investigate. They had a storage uh, they had a storage locker. They, uh, the FBI was told ahead of time, told the family ahead of time, so it was cleaned out before they got there, the IRS. So all this stuff was happening, and basically they got him on a few years of undeclared income. So a couple of things here. Number one, Democrats are trying to paint this as like a partisan witch hunt. The, the whistleblower is a gay Democrat. <laughs> I mean, you know, he has no partisan reason to do this. He has no incentive to do this whatsoever. He's he's being attacked. His name is being dragged through the mud. It's his reputation is on the line. He he is his his motives are entirely pure, and he's doing this because he saw something wrong. Second thing that I find found amazing from that hearing is that Hunter Biden is taking money from Barisma, right? solely on the basis of his relationship with his father. He doesn't speak Ukrainian. He doesn't have uh, he doesn't have any experience in the energy business, all the rest. Of it. It's a pure grift. And he didn't pay taxes on any of Nothing. the money. And Nothing. guess who talks about taxes all the time and the rich don't pay their fair share? Exactly, right? So he didn't pay taxes on a single dime of it. 
you know, and then the third thing that I thought that that came out of that hearing is that both Ziegler and and Shapley both testified is that everybody agreed on felon, recommending felony charges. The prosecutors, the, the Democrats kept trying to say, well, you're the investigators. You don't get to make charging decisions, do you? They testified that all the prosecutors and all the investigators agreed on felony charges, and then felony charges don't happen. How does that happen, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, listen, so, it, it, uh, I, there, there's, some, there's some more. Just for people who haven't heard it yet, uh, there's some more to go over. Um, Shapley talked about Biden's role and his son's finances. Listen to this exchange. Cut 10. You've stated to CBS Evening News that there were certain investigative steps you were not allowed to take that could have led to President Biden. There are references to uh, to the, the father of the subject, President Biden. And in the course of any normal investigation, uh, when the, the subject's father is uh, somehow related to the finances of the subject, that in the normal course of any investigation, we would have to go and get that information to properly uh, uh, vet um, uh, the, the financial flows of money uh, in that investigation. But they were told, you're not going to go. And that's what this is about. It's it's not about some mysterious crack addiction, uh, hooker addiction, uh, addicted person who loves to do international business deals with no apparent skills. That's mysterious enough. But it's all about how the president, vice president benefited and how that might fit into policy. And what if we knew this leading up to the 2020 election? A hundred percent. And also the, just the disparate, uh, you know, use of power. You know, the fact that, you know, the, 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 the Justice Department, it seems whenever a Republican is under scrutiny and particularly Donald Trump, you know, it always works out that, well, we got to we got to we got to we got to charge him. We've got to investigate him. Uh, you know the 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 Mueller probe, the the Steele dossier, the the impeachments, the uh, the the uh, the Bragg prosecution. Now the now the the the, the documents prosecution. Now January sixth prosecution always falls into let's prosecute felonies. You know that. But when the Democrats are in, there's always an excuse why they don't get charged. You know Hillary Clinton. Well, you know no intent. You know at that. You know the, the Joe Biden. You know it's not the same. Hunter Biden. Yeah, you know misdemeanors. It's it. You know there's a pattern. <laughs> it's a pattern here where the Democrats get off and the Republicans always get charged or investigated. And it, and so Americans see this. Uh, and you know you, you don't have you don't have to defend what Donald Trump did to recognize that there is a disparate treatment of the way Trump is being treated and the way the Biden family gets treated, and that the and and this is just it what it does and the reason why you've got a gay Democrat coming out to 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 expose this is because. He doesn't care about Trump. He doesn't care about Biden. He's he's not doing this for politics. He cares about the credibility of the system, right? It is the it is the system that's on trial here with the American people, and he's trying to restore credibility to the to the system by exposing its flaws. And he tried to do it within the system. And he had, I mean, how how much bias does there have to be that a guy like this? would be so desperate and as a last resort come to Congress because he couldn't fix it from within. You know, that, that's right. what's so, what's so, so frustrating so about So uh, this is how I see it, and tell me if you think this is an accurate description. The pressure from the, the foundation is the business, and that's Hall, uh, that is James Gillar, that is to, uh, Tony Bobolinsky, Rob Walker, I should say, not Hall, and Devin Archer. They're doing all these business deals. Okay, uh, Hunter's in the lead. He said, they're all making the money. 
okay, what are they? Who's benefiting? Well, the the whole family's benefiting. The big guy is is Biden. Well, that's leading up to it. it's in the laptop. The laptop's real. The laptop's not real. Okay, we're all confused. Then all of a sudden, the pressure from the top comes the IRS. We're just trying to do our job here. We don't care about politics. We're accountants. We're investigators and accountants. And we are flabbergasted that we can't do our job. We're flabbergasted that it's taking five years to do something that should take five months. We're flabbergasted that they feel they can get away with this, even though they're apolitical and voted for Republicans and Democrats in Chapley's case and voted for Democrats his whole life in uh, Ziegler's case. So they're pushing, pushing, pushing. The floor is coming out. And then suddenly it's all coming out. So they said instead of looking at Joe Biden's taxes and taking everyone's word for it, then in comes Congress, the House. And they say, we're just going to look at the banks. We're going to be the referee. We're going to look at the banks. We're going to hear. We heard your story. And we're going to look at the banks. And they start unfolding and verifying what the IRS is trying to find and go forward on. And they're well, bringing the pressure from the middle. So you got the base. So now it's time to bring the business people in to verify the IRS people and one of them to say, Devin Archer, we know damn well the president's involved in this. You were in the meetings. Come on, Rob Walker, you got to tell me you're telling Hunter that you got to give some money for taxes to your dad or your dad's got to your dad's got to pay you back some of this money. There's already some recordings on this and there's emails and text messages. And my goodness, the WhatsApp message. How long can we keep this whole thing from exploding into everyone's news cycle? Um, so, well, the system will allow it to explode into the news cycle. You know, the, the, that's the problem. But here's the thing also about that WhatsApp, uh, you know, uh, messages. That, that is – and this is what people need to understand. This is not just a corruption issue. It's a national security issue. So that guy who is the who, who he's communicating with in that WhatsApp message where he's trying to shake him down and saying, I'm sitting here with my dad, blah, blah, blah. He is the business partner of the daughter of the former head of the Ministry of State Security in China. And, and, and he had already given Hunter Biden $5 million out of an account of a business he shared with the daughter of the Minister of State Security. Why is the daughter of the Minister of State Security – Given five million dollars to Hunter Biden, why I mean, is this, that? This, this, and why I, is it, I, I, why are they talking to a Chinese official about this? Did they talk yeah. to him like it's a little brother? You better yeah. understand this. We we want to hear from Z. You know we don't we don't want to hear from you. And you know we got to hold a grudge, and we're not going to forget this. Really, since when are we talking to Chinese officials like this? Yeah, I know. It's it, it's you know, but this is this is like this is not just a corruption issue. It's a national security issue. Why is the Chinese? Why is the why are the Chinese interested in, in paying off Hunter Biden? It's because because he's a great businessman. Because he knows about China. Because he speaks Mandarin. You know, he knows anything about energy. No, it's it's it's, 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 crazy. it's a crack whore. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> this has been good therapy. I appreciate the time you gave me. I've had nobody to talk to. I'm just watching this all day yesterday. Um, Mark Keeson, thank you so much. All right. Take care, Brian. Uh, the next thing is is uh, getting David Weiss in there and going to see that he was not able to do what he wanted to do. Back in a moment. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade.
a talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Yeah, I mean, I am uh, I hope you could see that for six hours, I watched almost all of it. Uh, and I'm talking about the hearings yesterday. And I just think that a lot of people work during the day. A lot of people are at the beach. You have other things to do. And when I saw that MSNBC wasn't taking a minute of it, CNN wasn't taking a minute of it, I don't really watch the 6 o'clock news. It's uh, it's something you just got to go out of your way, especially if you're listening to me right now and you haven't decided who you're voting for or if you think that Joe Biden should be the nominee. Just it's it's not hard to follow. It's really very simple. You have two IRS guys just totally flabbergasted how they were stopped for five years. And now David Weiss, who's a Trump appointed prosecutor, uh, attorney, district attorney, how he was told, telling us that he had freedom. He was telling them he did not have say. So these guys are lying to us. Merrick Gowen is lying when he said he had freedom. And then David Weiss is lying when he said he was totally free to prosecute however we wanted. And he never wanted to be uh, get special prosecutor status, which they say he did. And I watched these guys yesterday, and I believe every word they say. That's the reality. Joe Biden can never talk about guns again, and he should never talk about taxes again. Because total hypocrite. And he knew it the whole time. Remember, he turned around on that stage and said, if all this is true, where's the money? Maybe we're about to find out. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City, always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, heard around the country, heard around the world. Appreciate you being here this hour. We're going to be joined by Jennifer Griffin, who's standing by. And we're going to also talk to Peter uh, Fever, a Duke professor and former member of the National Security Council uh, during the Clinton and Bush administration, to find about the big, big challenges today. But speaking of the big, how about the big three? Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Critics have blasted Try That in a Small Town, saying it has a pro-lynching undertone. In the video, images are projected on a building, some showing clips of protests, looting, and tense police encounters. Yep, uh, that is a little of the controversy around Jason Aldean's Stand Strong, uh, standing strong behind his song. Sales soar and heat intensifies over the song depicting life in a simple small town. Some say it's gone too far. I don't. Number two. You don't solve the problem by eliminating bail altogether because what do you do? You create new problems and worse problems. Again, it's about incentives, right? You're, you're incentivizing people to commit crimes. That's what I think. Uh, and Brooke Goldstein, a big attorney, no bail at all. That's what Illinois is doing. If you think New York was crime central, since we do something very similar, this has gone even further. Governor Pritzker, who fans himself a national figure, uh, I got a figure. He is done. He's finished his through, and so is Chicago. Number one. Hunter Biden allegedly falsely claimed business deductions for payments made to the Chateau Marmont a hotel room for a supposed drug dealer. All of these items were used to support the willfulness element for felony tax evasion. Explosive and illuminating. That's how I describe the revelations from two IRS whistleblowers as we hear the facts, the special treatment of the entire Biden family and how many millions were made uh, and, uh, and seems to be missing. 
With me right now is uh, uh, Jennifer Griffin. Jennifer, oh, oh, there's been a lot of drama on Capitol Hill as we get through the summer and legislation, uh, but we can't keep our eyes up what's happening in the Ukraine. I understand Odessa was hit pretty hard. I understand the Wagner Group is intact in the Belarus. And this whole counterinsurgency, I guess, is not going as quick as everyone thought. What is the state of the game in Ukraine? Well, it's interesting, Brian. First of all, let's talk about what's happened in the last 24 hours. When Russia pulled out of the grain deal and basically said any ships coming into the Black Sea would be considered military uh, targets, uh, that has shut down basically a grain supply to the entire world. And so Africa is going to be hit very badly. The price of grain has gone through the roof. Um, uh, There are countries in Europe who are now, Croatia is now saying that they will serve as uh, as a uh, point of departure for Ukrainian grain, but it's going to be a lot more expensive to get that grain out of what has been the breadbasket of Europe for for um, decades. And so Putin is turning, this is another hostage crisis that is being created by Vladimir Putin. And the fact that the UN is not up in arms about this, that countries like South Africa are still uh, supporting Putin when, in fact, you know, he's holding all of the country's grain, uh, uh, the world's grain uh, hostage. And this is just a way to keep turning up the pressure on Ukraine. He's very angry that the Ukrainians were able to hit the Kursk Bridge um, with a pretty uh, dramatic attack uh, that connects to Crimea. That happened in the last few days. And so this punishing, the punishing airstrikes in Odessa are designed to also be affecting uh, the grain storage sites as well as to to really strike back at civilian targets, not military targets. That's been his game all along. In terms of the counteroffensive, the Pentagon has said all along that they expected it to be extremely slow and bloody and uh, dug in because the Russians had uh, months, if not an entire year, to dig trenches. It is World War I-style warfare, and the amount of mines that have been laid, it makes it almost impossible for all of that great equipment, the the um, military hardware, uh, tanks and, and uh, armored personnel carriers that the U.S. and others have provided to move. They're moving at a snail's pace. That being said, we also heard that Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian armed forces have made a big move today around Bakhmut. They've encircled it. They may be able to push Russian forces out of Bakhmut. So the Russian forces, while they may be dug in with these, these mines, Putin is essentially playing for time. He's hoping to have a change of leadership in various countries and that he can play out the clock and that the West will, will get worn down. You saw at the NATO summit, however, that the, the West was uh, pretty united and still um, providing a large amount of, of, of weapons uh, to Ukraine, a great deal of solidarity in terms of the EC commitment financially to Ukraine. But it is complicated and it is very important. And this summer is extremely extremely important. And that's why there's renewed debates about whether it's time to get those F-16s in there, to get more air power in there. And that is why the U.S. decided to go against its past statements on cluster munitions and to provide those munitions to try and break that uh, that blockade, if you will, along the 600-mile front line where those mines have been laid. Wow, uh, that was a lot. So what about, first off, on the grain? Last time Turkey came in, they kind of negotiated something. Would this be at the point with massive starvation looming and an economy teetering that maybe NATO provides the escorts? 
Well, the escorts, the problem is that those waters have now been mined, and so you're going to start losing ships. And and the way Russia has laid the mines in the waters, they've made it look like they're Ukrainian mines when, in fact, they've laid the mines. And 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 so you start losing ships. It's very, it's really unclear how you could safely do this. Remember, Turkey has made a real about face in the last um, last month, uh, agreeing at the NATO summit with great fanfare, uh, and finally to Sweden joining NATO. That has angered Putin, and that is probably one of the triggers for why this uh, this move on the Ukraine uh, on on uh, grain. Uh, exports is, uh, you know, he's basically backed out of that agreement that Turkey had brokered um, uh, early in the conflict. So uh, Erdogan is is in an interesting position. He's certainly the gatekeeper there in the Black Sea. Um, he can start playing hardball with Putin. And the question is, but Turkey has also said that they won't um, escort ships through there because if one of those ships, if a Turkish ship or a NATO ship is hit, you've got an Article 5 issue and then you have NATO at war with Russia. When you see uh, Prigozhin in Belarus saying, hey, good to see everybody. I'm not going to go into Ukraine anymore. I'm going to probably hang out here. We have other missions. What's really going on there? It is really this one is is baffling because you heard the head of MI6, uh, the the British intelligence service, um, make some very um, unusual statements about Prigozhin and what's happening with Putin and Prigozhin. And, it, and frankly, I think it has baffled the Western intelligence services who watch this stuff and listen very closely. I think that uh, we don't know how the final chapter of this sort of soap opera drama between Putin and Prigozhin plays out. It is clear to me that Prigozhin has what, when we lived in Moscow, was called kompromat, which is a Russian word for basically compromising material on Putin. And so they have come to a sort of mafia-style uh, agreement to divide up territory and allow Prigozhin to keep making money. And remember, Putin still needs Prigozhin's forces in Africa, where he's basically uh, stripping those lands of minerals and, and resources uh, to fund his war. And he also needs the Wagner troops on the ground in Syria for plausible deniability when he does certain things. And remember, Prigozhin was the one who was in charge of the um, the Internet Research Agency or whatever they called it that interfered in the U.S. election. So, so he Prigozhin still has a lot of power. He clearly has. Uh, they each have a lot on each other, and so the compromise right now is. Okay, I'll stay out of Ukraine. My forces won't be in Ukraine. I won't embarrass your defense leaders who are basically um, uh, losing, you know, thousands of forces each day and absolutely can't seem to uh, win this conflict in Ukraine. And I will um, be your sort of uh, frontline forces in the re the rest of the world. Um, how this plays out eventually, whether there will be frustrations and more flare-ups at some point, whether Prigo the fact that Prigozhin was still allowed to live after basically attempting a coup against Moscow is, again, still a head-scratcher, and I don't think we've seen the end of, of this, uh, this drama between the two of them. You know, it's almost as if we never believe what we hear, but Belarus the president, uh, Lushenko, said, yeah, I negotiated a deal, set up a base for him. Uh, you know, I talked to Vladimir Putin, and we're thinking to ourselves, there's no way this all happened. There's no way he's going to that base. There's no way. That, <laughs> well, of course, this is not it. And it, 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 actually, yeah, yeah. it actually, believe what we just heard. Everything's turning out like we Sometimes. thought. You know, to, you remember when for years as we covered uh, terrorists and yeah. ISIS and Al Qaeda together, 
listen to what they say. They often say what they mean and mean what they do and and do what they say. Uh, so I'm not saying that Lukashenko is, you know, more powerful than Putin right now, but and he's certainly not an independent player, but somehow Putin has allowed him to negotiate this uh, this compromise, but that compromise, there must have been something very serious that each had on each other, that the fact that both are still living um, is extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it is. What about the firing of these generals and Popoff actually popping off on camera? And, and he's alive and he's Pop like, yeah, it, it's, yeah, he is. I love the name. Right. And, <laughs> and it made it easy for me to remember. And I'm because I don't know yeah. these generals. I don't collect their trading cards, but I'm just well, amazed that they're either dead yeah. or fired. Well, it just shows how um, how weakened Putin is by this disastrous okay, war yeah. in Ukraine and, and how he has to move again. He, Everyone has always assumed he can play four-dimensional chess, but right now that's being really tested. And yes, uh, certain generals are being fired, but then what do they do? They really send them, usually if they're fired, they've been sent, they get sent out to Syria. And what you need to keep your eye on, and this is something I'm following closely, is uh, everyone wants to forget about the Middle East. Everyone always wants to say, okay, we're pivoting to Asia, forget about the Middle East. That's, you know, yesterday's wars. Well, right now what's happening is you have a lot of failed Russian generals who are really testing the mettle of and the patience of U.S. Central Command Air Force uh, personnel over in Syria. Every day they are challenging warplanes, uh, uh, Reaper and Predator drones. They are painting, uh, surveilling over the bases where U.S. troops, hundreds of U.S. troops are based. And the U.S. has been very, very careful so far not to get in a, a shooting match with these Russians. But these Russian pilots are ask, acting very recklessly, dangerously. And what I've been told is that these are uh, failed Russian generals who are trying to show off for Moscow, and you don't know what unintended, uh, unintended consequence can happen. Russia, Syria, and Iran are teaming up right now to try and push the U.S. out of the Middle East. And so keep an eye on any sort of flare-up in Iraq, Syria, um, in the Strait of Hormuz. That's why the U.S., uh, the Pentagon just sent um, a squadron of F-16s and F-35s out to uh, patrol the Strait of Hormuz because they are they're testing the U.S. military in the Middle East right now. Uh, no question. On multiple fronts. And at one point, why do we have to act like the most mature person in the room all the time? At one point, Very we just to stand up to a bully. It might be the only message sent. And I go back to when Turkey uh, shot down that Russian plane. Am I correct? Yeah. Uh, it's it's true. The problem, Brian, it always comes back to one issue, nuclear weapons. And it comes back to the fact that it would be very tempting to take out a Russian plane. But then what's next? And it's that escalation ladder. And where does it end? And what does it trigger in terms of a use of a nuclear weapon? And that is what right. the senior leaders, as frustrated as they are right now, uh, have to deal with on a daily basis. But why don't they think that? They know we have nuclear weapons, too. I know, but a nu- nobody wins in a nuclear war. I think we know right. that. But we're, we always have to act like the mature one in a, in a bar we fight. To, well, we used to – We look, the Cold War was simple. Everyone believed in mutually assured destruct, destruction. It's not clear what Putin and uh, a cornered Putin, a weakened Putin uh, does in moments like this. And so these assumptions that came out of the Cold War in terms of uh, uh, nuclear deterrence, 
uh, they don't seem to be working. And it's, it's, it's challenging. I think it's causing people to have to rethink how, how, how to deter uh, Russia, North Korea, uh, China. It's, it's really, there are no clear answers. But it's right. certainly, it needs to be done because they are, they're pressing buttons on, it, on every uh, front. Last question. We need financing of our Defense Department. We're below the inflation rate, which we're technically cutting. And over the weekend, Jake Sullivan said we are addressing the production problem when it comes to weaponry and artillery. Do any indications you've seen that they've set up different systems, long-term contracts in order to ramp up production? Well, I know it's been the focus of the Pentagon, and certainly, I mean, but when you start learning about how there's just one factory in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that makes all the 155-millimeter shells and ammunition, uh, that is a supply chain that needs to be addressed. And the problem is, as I understand it, it's built in a historically protected building that you can't expand. So that poor company is trying to expand to go, and they also want commitments from the government that that they're going to buy long-term if they're going to expand. Um, I still don't understand why the the administration has not used the Defense Production Act to sort of order these factories to start ramping up production. So the the relationship between the defense industrial base and uh, and the government and Congress is really challenged right now. Uh, but people I know are working on it. Uh, it's just that it moves a lot slower than you and I can possibly understand. And and uh, but it needs to be addressed because what Ukraine has shown is that both the Western stockpiles as well as the U.S. stockpiles, they were in during the Cold War. One of the uh, peace dividends was to basically uh, prepare for having not keeping stockpiles of of ammunition, and and you you were supposed to plan for you know a short war. It was always supposed to be that we would have short wars after this. Well, what we're seeing with Ukraine is that's not true, and that these kind of wars that go on and on they eat up a lot of ammunition. So those assumptions that came out of the Cold War have to be revisited, and the industrial base mm. has to be uh, bolstered if if we're not going to get in trouble. Right now, yep. uh, gotcha. the U.S. and others could not deal with Taiwan if if they had to, given the strain gotcha. on the industrial base. Jennifer Griffin, thanks so much. Fox News National Security Correspondent. Back in a moment. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. When we became official, what were your thoughts when he said, I choose you? You know, it was uh, it was really remarkable to see the, the trajectory, the momentum of Major League Soccer, the best player, I think, in the history of the game, saying this is my league of choice. So it's pretty cool. You know, that's not something that happens every day. And that was uh, Don Gorber, MLS commissioner, talking about acquiring the best player uh, in the world, he's going to be in Inter-Miami. Why? Because the league makes accusation, acquisitions at the behest of the teams who are individually owned, but there's a central entity thing to it. So essentially, if you have a shot at a Messi, it benefits the whole league so you could do it. And if those of you who aren't into soccer, and there's so many are, so I know I'm talking to a smaller audience every day that, that says, yeah, I'm not into it. Just picture, and you want to know the impact. So picture LeBron James winning a championship with the Lakers in that pandemic year. So 33 years old. Yeah. Winning a championship. I think he got the MVP too. And then going to Italy or France and deciding to play. You'd go, what? Why would you leave the best league in the world? And why would you go to France? Well, I think they're up and coming. They got a lot of good players. Uh, The owner of the team used to be a teammate of mine, David Beckham. 
is uh, the own, one of the owners of Inter Miami. So he's going. Now think about what that would do for basketball in Italy. Almost like when Gretzky went to Los Angeles from Edmonton in the NHL. It is going to be huge. It is going to be like a rock concert coming to your town, your city. They could probably get 70000 wherever they go. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Our policies, whether they're diversity, inclusion, and equity, or whether they're about transgender individuals who qualify physically and mentally to serve to be able to do it with dignity, or whether it's about female service members, one in five, or female family members being able to count on the kinds of health care and reproductive care specifically that they need to serve. Uh, that is a foundational, sacred obligation of military leaders across the river. Uh, I've seen it myself, and it matters because it says we're invested in you because you are being willing to invest in us. Because you're not going for cancer treatment. You're going for an abortion. And it's probably the most polarizing thing in America. Never talked about it until Roe was overturned. Now we talk about it every day. And now in the military, they're saying, I'm going to provide you money to go get an abortion uh, if it means you're going across state lines, if you happen to be in a state that banned it or you passed this, uh, the threshold. Really? Is that really what they should be doing? As Tom Cotton brought up, who served in the infantry, he said, why would that not be a vacation day? Why are you making it where people are paying taxpayer dollars to get an abortion? I don't care where you stand on what I just said. Bottom line is the military should not be involved in politics. And for them to take a stand, Senator Tuberville said, we're not going to have any promotions. Uh, no one's going to be uh, getting any uh, going to get any confirmations until this is rescinded. Where does that leave us? Well, let's talk to Peter Fever. He's a Duke professor, uh, a Duke professor, former member of the National Security Council for Clinton and Bush, author of the book. Thanks for your service. The causes and consequences of public confidence in the U.S. military. Peter, where do you stand on this? This is the one thing that's kind of hurting our readiness right now. No question about it. Well, the the challenge we have is that the military is one of the few institutions that the public, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, have hold a high level of confidence in. Even today, it's declined in recent years, but still, it's one of the few. Public don't have high confidence in Congress, the media, uh, the academy where I work, but the media, the military, they do. However, that confidence is declining and. One concern is if we drag the military into partisan politics, then that confidence could erode even further, and that's not going to be good for the country. Right. Uh, where do you think we are at uh, as this, with this politically correct uh, Pentagon, where there's people are taking uh, equity courses and, and talking about transgender <laughs> financing instead of how would we beat China in a war and how do we uh, support Ukraine? Well, I think the military is, in fact, focused on lethality and mission. When you talk to members of the military, whether the senior most members or, or just the rank and file, they are focused on the competition with China, the challenge that Russia pro- Hey, hey Peter, i got to tell you, there's Ukraine. a reason why a lot of families are not recommending that their kids go in. They feel the military well, has changed. Right. That's a di- but uh, So what I was going to say is while the military is focused on this, what you're seeing is more partisan commentary from both sides that have, are targeting the military. They've made the military now combatants in the culture wars. 
these are cultural issues that should be decided by civilians who will make the policy, and then the military has to salute and obey the policy, whichever uh, civilian is in charge. But what we've done is now we're targeting the military. We're putting holds on the military. We're asking the military to stand up and speak to very culturally divisive issues, and, and that's not good. We should treat the military as non-combatants in the culture war and have the civilians be arguing, but leaving the military to be nonpartisan and on the sidelines, focusing on national security. When you look at the threats out there, are you convinced that we're putting enough money aside to properly fund them? No, I think we're going to have to uh, increase uh, national defense spending. Uh, There's been a decline, and I realize that that, uh, with the debt, we have a, a, a serious fiscal crisis as well as a national security crisis. But if you try to save money by being cheap on defense, it'll hurt in the long run. So we're going to have to find the money to fund the uh, innovation, the modernization, so that we can stay ahead of the competition from China. Uh, Peter, what what about when we find out we have to use cluster munitions in Ukraine because we ran out of uh, 155 (laughs) artillery? Well, one of the things that the war in Ukraine has exposed is just how inadequate our defense industrial base is. We have, we're used to fighting uh, uh, against um, weaker states. You know, the global war on terror was us mostly fighting transnational networks where we had an enormous advantage. But in the future, we're going to be facing uh, great powers, and we're going to need a much larger arsenal. And we, as a country, we've let the um, defense industrial base Language And the Ukraine war has exposed that. We have got to invest in the capacity to produce the, the military uh, – sorry, the weapons that our military needs. Uh, when, when you have uh, – thanks for your service. Do you th- your focus on this book is to let people know what it is like serving this country and where we're at right now? My focus is on public confidence in the military. What does it mean? Why do we have it? What what does it mean that we have high confidence in the military but not in other institutions? That's not a healthy place for us to be. I don't want confidence in the military to drop, but I would like us as a society to to have greater confidence in civilian institutions. But, of course, all of these institutions have to earn it. One of the interesting things about public confidence in the military is part of it is propped up by – by just peer pressure. People say they have confidence in the military because they think that's the politically correct thing to to say. But when you tap into their underlying attitudes, their confidence may be less than what they claim it to be. So the military has to be focused not on keeping confidence high, but on earning that confidence through being competent and being ethical in what they do and staying far, far away from partisan politics. So do you know, do you think we had the wrong mindset coming out of the Cold War? No, I, I think we uh, under Ronald Reagan, the military buildup, uh, he was able to restore uh, public confidence in the military. You know, it hasn't always been the case that the public held the military, the professional military, in high esteem. Uh, traditionally, Americans looked down on the regular military and only celebrated sort of the draft armies of World War II. But Ronald Reagan, uh, under the Reagan administration, it changed. Desert Storm changed. And and really in the post-Cold War era, we've had several decades now of high levels of confidence in the military, in part because the Americans see the military as capable of doing things, performing, when many other institutions are not. That's good to maintain that competence. 
And what we need is to improve the competence of other civilian institutions. Right. That would be great. That's why we, we fear the political correctness will bring uh, the Pentagon down. Uh, well, one of the things is if an institution becomes part of a, a viewed as partisan, look, think of the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, when I started in this business, I said there's two institutions that the public had high confidence in, the military and the Supreme Court. But now public confidence in the Supreme Court has dropped, and that's because people view it as a partisan institution, either Democrat or Republican. And unfortunately, partisan views of partisan institutions uh, leads to low confidence. I understand that. And we're looking now at our threats. What happened to Russia? They were supposed to be allies. Remember, that was a big debate. Don't pretend they're they're our enemies. They're friends of ours. Have we changed or have they changed? When the Cold War ended, every president, the Republican Democrat, had the same goal, which was – to avoid a new Cold War, to avoid the rise of a hostile peer rival, someone who could match the United States and challenge us. And so that meant maintaining American defense spending, but it also meant reaching out to the dissatisfied powers like Russia and rising powers like China and see if we couldn't work with them. Both the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, Obama, they all made an attempt to work with Russia and to work with China, and those attempts failed. Uh, Russia under Putin and China under Xi Jinping have revealed themselves to be implacably opposed to American interests. And so now they're a a challenge, a threat, really, that we have to confront. Right. And we are confronting them through Ukraine. And we'll see where this goes as they shut off the grain. Uh, They shut off the grain. And something's got to give there because uh, millions will be starving soon. Well, this is one of the great tragedies of the Ukraine war. The Ukrainian people are paying a horrible toll, but it's not just them. Uh, the global south, uh, the poor countries who depend on Ukraine's uh, wheat for, for food, uh, they are also at risk from this war. And that's why it's, it's really important that uh, we equip Ukraine in order to win the war, quickly resolve this. Eventually, though, it's going to have to be resolved with some sort of peace agreement between Uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians, but I don't think that will happen until uh, Ukraine is able to win back more of its territory. Uh, I agree with you. Yeah, not until they do that. You don't take 20 percent of a country and then talk peace. Uh, Thanks so much. Appreciate it, Peter. I look forward to your book. Uh, Thanks for your service, The Causes and Consequences of Public Confidence in in the U.S. Military. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. You got it. Peter Fever. Uh, When we come back, we'll take your calls, 1-866-408-7669. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Critics have blasted Try That in a Small Town, saying it has a pro-lynching undertone. In the video, images are projected on a building, some showing clips of protests, looting, and tense police encounters. Critics have also taken issue with the building shown in the video, the Maury County Courthouse, where a young black man was lynched by a white mob in 1927. Well, it turns out that area is a video location, is a popular filming location, Outside Nashville, obviously, country music, they like to go there. Uh, They did a Lifetime original movie there called Steppin'. Did anyone say, how dare you do that? Mario Lopez and uh, uh, Jana Jana Kramer, she used to be on here. She came on a couple of times, did a music video. 
uh, uh, music video from Runaway June. We Were Rich, a Paramount holiday film, was shot there. So, I mean, countless people have done it in the same spot. You, you can't land on him. Jason Aldean, in a song, was trying to say, in the small town, we got our own police force. Crime's not going to fly here. He shows the carjacking that's going on, the chaos in the streets, what Illinois is doing right now with zero cash bail. And he wrote a song about real life. That's what country musicians do. But Cheryl Crow, trying to be relevant again, said Jason Aldean says, I'm from a small town. Even people in small towns are sick of violence. There's nothing small town or American about promoting violence. You should know that better than anyone else having survived a mass shooting. This is not American. This is not American or small town like. It's just lame. What are you talking about? I mean, my goodness. So Jason Aldean came back. Said the last 24 hours have been accused of releasing a pro-lynching song and was subjected to comparison, if not direct quote, was not too pleased to be with the nationwide BLM protests. These references are not only meritless, but dangerous. There's not a single lyric in the song that references race or points to it. And there's not a single video clip that isn't real news footage. And while I can try and respect others to have their own interpretation of a song with music, this one goes too far. As so many, as so many pointed out, I was present at Route 91, Route 91, where so many lost their lives and our community recently suffered another heartbreaking tragedy. No one, including me, wants to, because that's shooting over in Nashville, remember the private school, wants to know, see senseless headlines of of families ripped apart. Try uh, that in a small town. For me, it refers to the feeling of a community they had grown up with, where we took care of our neighbors, regardless of the differences of backgrounds. By the way, this is a tweet that you could read from Jason Aldean. Uh, because they were our neighbors. They were above, they were, and that was above my differences. My political views have never been something I've been hidden from anyone. And I know there's a lot of us in country music who don't agree on how we get back to a sense of normalcy where we go to at least a day without a headline that keeps us up all night. But the desire for it, that's what the song is about. Ron DeSantis supports him, says, when the media attacks you, you're doing something right. Jason Aldean has nothing to apologize for. I agree. I mean, is this so unbelievable? Evidently, the they had the CMN, CMT Music Festival took place. He still played the song. So, well, that thank goodness for that at least. So um, it's number one, right? It is number one. Good. I mean, it's getting him the attention. If you want, we have um, the Tennessee representative Justin Jones. If you remember, he was the one who was ousted at one point. Um, oh, he's blasting. What a clown! Team. But I'll, I'll listen. As a Tennessee lawmaker, as the youngest black lawmaker in our state, I felt like we had an obligation and a duty to condemn this heinous, vile, racist song that is really about um, harkening back to days past. There's no accident that he filmed this in the site um, of the Murray County Courthouse where the uh, race riot happened and where as well as the 1927 lynching of a young man who was 18 years old, um, Henry Cho, occurred. Um, This song is about normalizing racist violence, vigilantism, and white nationalism. And it's, it's about glorifying um, a South that we are moving forward from and that we're trying to move forward from here in Tennessee. Is this a joke? I mean, are you kidding? I just told you what, what happens at the location. It's a filming site. That's where people go to film music videos. It's not there because of the site. So, okay, so condemn the Hallmark movie that's also shot there. It's absolutely insane. So I'm glad. I'm glad he's going to power through and in the short term it's going to help. But it's also going to hurt him overall with these award shows because people tell me in country music that the new generation is not red, white, and blue. They're more Hollywood. 
I thought Jason Aldean's kind of the new generation. I don't think he's 40 yet. Maybe he's 40. I don't know. I thought he was kind of a new generation. But him and his wife are, are Republicans, right? That's not a big deal. Charlie Daniels, John Rich. I think most country music stars uh, were Republican. But the Luke Bryans of the world and others, I guess, aren't. Remember, when Luke Bryan welcomed Ron DeSantis onto the stage after they came out of that hurricane, or what other natural catastrophe would happen hit Florida? People got all mad at Luke Bryan, even though the crowd cheered. It was great to see their governor. I guess they were happy about it. The crowd cheered. Luke Bryan got used backlash, and he came back and said, listen, he's our sitting governor. He uh, helped us stand up. Uh, and get live music back and live entertainment back, beginning with UFC. I wanted to thank him for it, and that's it. And also, we raised a whole lot of money for him. So it's just crazy. But, Brian, to that point, though, I mean, our, I mean, A, his song is now number one, so it sounds as if he's getting hurt by it in short, the short term. term. But, I mean, if you remember Morgan Wallen, right, he was, like, canceled for using the N-word. Now he's selling out all over the country, right? Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. And I know they tried to label him racist. He was using the term in a wrong way, but he didn't have any harm by it. Almost everybody that knows him knew that. Michael Strahan went out to normalize him. He was kind of resentful, reportedly, saying, why do you always send me out? Why, because I'm black, I have to go interview the white guy that says the wrong thing? But there was nothing there in terms of they, they try to get NASCAR for being racist and they try to get country music for being racist. They, they fail because they're not. They're actually just the opposite, most tolerant people around. But Nashville's got very Hollywood. Don't you see that half of Hollywood has moved over to Nashville anyway? Well, that's what they say. I mean, Nashville, the city of, is very liberal now. But, but on the, the outside, rest of Tennessee is not. Yeah, the first, the further you get outside the difference. I know, uh, what's her name? Uh, Chandler Swift, Swift went out and was against Senator Blackburn for a while. She was kind of nervous about that, was supporting another candidate. and But people are like, hey, you're a great musician, but I'll vote for who I want to vote for. That's key. Remember, Bruce Springsteen shows up for Al Gore. Thanks. Great. Big crowd. Got to go. Not voting for him. Terrible guy. John Kerry, same thing. A bunch of celebrities show up and they play music for him, but people don't do that. So I hope Jason Aldean's able to do it. By the way, it would be a great booking for our show. Eric, if you have some time, if you would call. But um, Well, Ainsley just sat down with the gov- Governor DeSantis and his wife, so you can sit down with Jason and his wife. I think, it's yeah, it's my turn. Yes. I think it's my turn. All right. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Don't forget One Nation. We're getting set to format that show. It's going to be Saturday at 8 o'clock. And now you can go out and pre-order Teddy and Booker T, how two American icons uh, blazed a trail for uh, racial justice. You can now download it coming out in November. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. We come to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan, which is about 100 degrees. Uh, but of course, no complaints. Uh, we are heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, this hour, we're going to be joined by Chris Rufo, author of uh, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. He's done so much to uncover uh, some of the insidious things happening, in my view, uh, in our schools. I cannot wait to get to this book that came out this week. Senator Roger Marshall, Health and Small Business Energy Committees. He's going to talk about what happened with the censorship we're seeing on Capitol Hill. This hearing that's happening right now on the House side, and it's just outrageous as they're trying to stop Senator uh, Senator. 
RFK Jr. from speaking out and defending himself and, you know, getting his point out. They don't like it because I guess he's running for president, and so is Joe Biden. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Critics have blasted Try That in a Small Town, saying it has a pro-lynching undertone. In the video, images are projected on a building, some showing clips of protests, looting, and tense police encounters. Yep, there you go. Jason Aldean stands strong, sales soar, and heat intensifies. We'll discuss. Number two. You don't solve the problem by eliminating bail altogether, because what do you do? You create new problems and worse problems. Again, it's about incentives, right? You're, you're incentivizing people to commit crimes. Yes, Brooke Goldstein, she's an attorney. No bail at all. That's what Illinois is doing for the first time in history. New York tried that to a degree, and it became crime central. Governor Pritzker, I thought you had national ambitions. Number one. Hunter Biden allegedly falsely claimed business deductions for payments made to the Chateau Marmont, a hotel room for a supposed drug dealer. All of these items were used to support the willfulness element for felony tax evasion. John Ziegler, explosive and illuminating. That's how I describe the revelations from two IRS whistleblowers as we hear the facts, the special treatment for the entire Biden family and try to find out where the millions upon millions of dollars is gone. Uh, with me right now is Chris Russo. Chris uh, Rufo, I, I don't want to confuse you with the sports talk host. Chris, uh, just a, would, do you have any take on what took place yesterday with those IRS hearings? Yeah, I, I mean, they were stunning and shocking, and, and any, other, uh, any other president would have been a scandal. And in some ways, I'm surprised that, that it landed with kind of a dud. Um, and I thought that even Congresswoman Green— uh, I'm not always a big fan of her rhetoric. I think she did the right thing by exposing the graphic pictures. And the question, from my point of view, is this. If, if, the, if the Democrats and the liberals want to expose uh, uh, children to pornography in schools, um, why is this evidence of clear corruption and bad action on behalf of the president's son, perhaps uh, even involving the president in, in his financial dealings, not, not fair game? I think it's a good question that she raised. Uh, absolutely. I want you to hear this. We know— that the president over and over said, I have no idea about my uh, my son's overseas business dealings. And Dan Goldman uh, out, uh, outdid himself here. You Democrat. describe a lunch, what we t- t- uh, talked about earlier, where uh, Joe Biden came to say hello at the Four Seasons Hotel to a lunch that he was having with CEFC executives, right? That's correct. Hunter told his dad, according to Rob Walker, quote, I may be trying to start a company or try to do something with these guys. Now, let me ask you something. That doesn't sound much like Joe Biden was involved in whatever Hunter Biden was doing with the CEFC if Hunter Biden is telling him that he's trying to do business with them, does it? No, but it does show that he, said, he told his father he was trying to do business. And he was okay, talking well, to that is true. Hunter Biden does try to do business. And he went on to say, yeah, and he's told everybody he doesn't know anything about it. I mean, does this guy realize what an idiot he is? I mean, I, J- Joe Biden forgets uh, the, the, the names of the people closest to him. So it's quite possible, given his uh, uh, mental oh, state, out. Yeah. That, that, that he forgot. Uh, that's charitable. But, I, I mean, there's these rumors and these stories and these scandals have been circling around Hunter Biden for years. It's totally inconceivable that the president— 
uh, did not know what was happening, did not know at how troubled his son was, and did not know the kind of shady people he was around. And maybe I'm old school, but uh, if my my parents, my father, saw me hanging around with the kind of people that Hunter hangs around with, um, he would find out about it, and, and he'd let me know how he felt about it. Joe Biden, on the other hand, just feels like, oh, you know, Hunter can kind of lead whatever life he wants, doesn't seem to, 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 to care too much one way or the other. Uh, Chris, uh, you, you've been focusing on education. You've gotten the governor's attention, the country's attention, by exposing what's going on. Is this a concerted effort to change the way kids think in America? And if so, when did it start? That's exactly what it is. And that's really the key story that I tell in my new book, uh, America's Cultural Revolution, uh, which is out now, debuted at number one on the bestseller list. And it's the story of the 50-year-long march of the institutions. And radical left ideologists have spent 50 years figuring out how to change consciousness through education, infiltrating the universities and in the K-12 schools. And so it should be no surprise that a lot of the problems we see today with indoctrination, critical race theory, gender ideology, um, it, it's not happening by accident. It's part of a deliberate 50-year plan that is now just unfolding for everyone to see. Who's, who's behind it? Um, really, what's, who's behind it is the, the, the radical left, intellectuals first and foremost, and then all of the fellow travelers in their movement, the teachers, the teachers' unions, uh, the, the Democratic Party, all of the uh, power brokers on the left have submitted to these ideologies. And I think a lot of them are true believers. That's kind of what I've learned in the research. They really, truly believe it's the right thing. But many of them are cynical operators, and that's where the bureaucracies get involved, the DEI commissars uh, and, and the teachers' unions. These are uh, purely cynical operators, and they, they see these ideologies. They see the destruction of these uh, kids through these ideologies as a collateral damage uh, in their quest for power. Well, that's interesting because – uh, Governor DeSantis seems to be I think I think in my humble opinion, you're the one who really informed him of how bad this got. What has your interaction with him been about? Uh, it, it, it's been incredible. I've been really infinitely impressed with the governor. I've had the honor of working with him on critical race theory, gender, uh, university reform. And, and what I love about him and having spent a lot of one on one time observing how he works, he has an understanding of how power works, how institutions work how laws work, how budgets work. I mean, he has the most detailed vision of how to actually get results. And what I've seen in Florida is really stunning. I mean, he knows how to work the legislative process. He knows where to, where to spend his time and his capital. Um, and, and he's really transformed that state. And that's why I think he'd be such a great president. I mean, he's someone that could get the job done where you know, many Republicans in the past uh, have merely promised to get the job done. Right. Uh, but is it possible to undo this this curriculum? I mean, to undo this this mission statement that has been implemented for decades? Yeah. And, and I think we have to look to Florida and, and, uh, and some of the policies that I outlined in the book. Um, he's already taken up many of those policies. You know, he's uh, overhauled the higher education system. He's gotten rid of CRT. He just abolished the DEI departments of every public university in Florida. He's bringing in more conservative professors, more conservative academics, the people who are going to actually train the next generation of teachers. And in the K-12 school, there is no gender theory in any Florida K-12 school uh, in the public sector. There's no critical race theory in any K-12 school in, in Florida. And, you know, he took a lot of hits for this. Uh, of course, the left was not happy that he was uh, uh, taking out uh, their, their most prized ideologies. 
but he's done the right thing. The people of Florida have rewarded him, and um, the education system there is much better for it. Uh, so in your book, we're talking to Chris Rufo, you also say that BLM has a role in this. Uh, you say what happened in Minneapolis, go to funding the cops, has a role in this. The re, uh, this reawareness of racial divisions of our past hating our country, that's all part of this. That's right. And as I outline in the book, I trace the lineage of BLM from uh, Angela Davis and the Black Panther Party and the Black Liberation Army, which was a Marxist-Leninist guerrilla group. Um, and it's quite shocking what I found in all of these old pamphlets and manuals and, and, and revolutionary manifestos. Um, they talk about the 1619 as the real founding of the country, much like you see now in The New York Times. They talk about uh, systemic racism, white privilege, all of those phrases that felt so new and fresh in 2020 actually have a long history dating back to the 1960s. And so BLM, Black Lives Matter, is just really a reincarnation of the Black Panther Party. Um, they believe the same things. And in order to defeat BLM, I think it's uh, extremely uh, helpful to understand exactly where it comes from, exactly how it operates, exactly how they've attained power. Um, and that's what I try to show in the book. All right. Uh, Chris Rufo, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again. America's Culture Revolution. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, when we come back, I'll take your calls, one 408 And I want to expand and give you an idea of what's happening right now on Capitol Hill with RFK Jr. And also I'll give you, uh, let's go over what happened yesterday and where we go from here with this investigation into Hunter Biden's dealings and how it relates to his dad, who is going back to Philadelphia to give a speech about an economy, stepping over the crackheads and meth heads in the same time. You'll listen to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Was there other evidence in this investigation that you were denied access to? Yes, there was. One piece was uh, was the uh, Hunter Biden laptop. Assistant United States Attorney Leslie Wolf told us on that day, I think it was September 3rd of uh, uh, 2020, and that's that they had uh, information from the laptop that they were not providing to the investigators. So think about this. That is Shapley, the whistleblower, using the laptop to do an investigation because we now know the FBI knew about it, that it was real in 2019. They didn't tell anyone about it. Now, the IRS knew about it. They were using it to investigate Hunter while the Pradad was a candidate. And they wanted to get into it and say, listen, i got to find out what other business dealings he's doing. It's sitting right here. We can use it. And they said, no, we don't want you to use it because it might link to his dad. How crazy is that? Here's more between Ziegler and Shapley talking to both whistleblowers, talking about what they had to do and why, what it took for them to come forward. Cut seven. You said at page 23, and I remember there were always times where we were always on an impending election cycle. I don't see where you referenced it in my, tra- you know, for page me to follow 23. Along. You're talking about how the election cycle is delaying decisions. I'm sorry, sir. That's in Special Agent Ziegler's transcript. That's why I couldn't find it. That was this guy's confused a lot. Uh, Chris Shanaworth, uh, he was also the ranking member on the uh, China Committee, Select Committee on China. He got lost a lot. 
and these guys made a lot of mistakes. You can't really touch this guy's credibility. The question is they're backing up everything the business, his business partner said and were discovered to said, have said. Uh, Tony Bobulinski is one who came forward. It looks like Devin Archer is coming forward as early as next week. So this, the question is, when are we going to get the business with the IRS to move forward to find out and link Joe to it? When is the Democratic Party going to stop pretending as if they're being fair? So uh, what they had to do their careers, it kind of blew them up. They're not going to get any advancement. They're not getting any promotion. These guys say that they really can't get anybody on the phone. Here's a little of the exchange I thought you'd uh, appreciate between uh, Shapley uh, and Comer. And what you have in those two guys is a guy that they, they're not saying that they have scripted everything, but they've been over it so much. They know exactly where they're going and what the people have to hear. Cut five. Approximate total transfers from the Romania company would have been $3.1 million to everyone. How much did Hunter Biden and his business associates receive from State Energy HK Limited through the Robinson Walker LLC? $3 million. The total transfers from Hudson West 3 to everyone was $3.7 million. Burisma paid to everyone involved $6.5 million. Burisma also paid Blue Star Strategies and a law firm hundreds of thousands of dollars, bringing the total Burisma payments to over $7 million. Is, is that correct? That is correct, $7.3 million. Between 2014 and 2019, this brings the total amount of foreign income streams received to approximately $17 million, correct? That is correct. How much money is this? It's unbelievable that Hunter's broke, living off some sugar daddy in California or with his actual daddy at the White House. Where is all this money? And how is he able to do crack, do every hooker he could, do every go 150 miles through the desert on crack to meet a bunch of women in the hot tub at the same time going to Romania, Ukraine, Moscow, and China. It's insane. I, I there's something weird about this whole crack addiction. You find them on the street, that's one thing, but you find them in boardrooms in China, that's a little bit different of a thing. Here's more from Shapley, cut six. Was there other evidence in this investigation that you were denied access to? Yes, there was. One piece was uh, was the, uh, the Hunter Biden laptop. Assistant United States Attorney Leslie Wolf told us on that day, I think it was September 3rd of uh, uh, 2020, and that's that they had uh, information from the laptop that they were not providing to the investigators. So this is gets us to this point. The investigation can't move forward unencumbered. We've been told something totally different by the attorney general. Now you have the charging agent, uh, David Weiss, appointed, I got it, uh, to Delaware from Trump. But he, they said that he's got total freedom. He doesn't have total freedom. So somebody's not telling the truth. And then you got these guys coming forward saying this is an absolute mess. Here's what Comer says is next. Cut 20. And the IRS whistleblowers thought they should be charged, too. This, this investigation by the IRS has been obstructed from the start. And they confirmed what I've been complaining on your show for months, Sean, that the Biden lawyers, the DOJ, the FBI, they're doing everything they can to intimidate witnesses, to obstruct our investigation. Just this week when we had the transcribed interview with the retired FBI agent who confirmed what the whistleblower said, uh, right before he came in to do the transcribed interview, he got a letter from the FBI telling him not to cooperate with the oversight committee. I mean, there is example after example of the government stepping in, covering up 
all of the corruption that the Biden family's committed. It's uh, it's exasperating. Uh, Kimberly Strasso, lastly, was here. Uh, this is what she said We was the takeaway yesterday with this whistleblower hearing. Cut 21. I think the real merit of today was that the American people got to hear these people and see these people for themselves. We obviously had a transcript. There's been a dispute about their credibility. But the thing that really stuck out today was not just how credible they came across as, but the fact that when you listen to their testimony, the degree to which they corroborate each other. I mean, these are consistent stories, and they are consistent stories of a prosecutorial office that appears to have handled this investigation in a manner way differently than they would have handled any other investigation. And that's what we don't want to see happen at the Department of Justice. And please tell me that uh, you, you don't see it. You see it happening right now every day. Look at the Trump investigations. Look at the Biden investigations. Look how quick they're moving on Trump. You hear anything about the Biden investigations? And we see it. They don't care. But we care. And we're gaining power every day. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Don't move. Uh, coming up next, Senator Roger Marshall. We'll see what's going to happen. There's some good news on the Republican Senate side, and I'll explain it. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Hunter Biden allegedly falsely claimed business deductions for for payments made to the Chateau Marmont a hotel room for a supposed drug dealer, sex club memberships, falsely referenced on the wire as a golf membership, hotels he was blacklisted from, and a Columbia University tuition payment for his adult daughter. All of these items were used to support willfulness, the willfulness element for felony tax evasion. These false deductions claimed by Hunter Biden caused a false return to be prepared that underreported his total income by approximately $267,000 and a loss to the U.S. Treasury of $106,000. It was unbelievable the amount of money, the amount of deception that was laid out and how Democrats really had no answer for it. And when they tried to counter him directly, they looked like fools. Senator Roger Marshall, uh, Health and Small Business and Energy Committee, so keep him busy. Uh, Republican from Kansas. Senator, welcome back. I don't know how much uh, you had a chance to see or hear from those hearings yesterday, but I was stunned by them. Yeah, Brian, I, I didn't get to watch all of it, but I've watched quite a bit of it. And and the, the Democrats cannot argue that these, these following facts have been established. That number one is the Biden cartel received $17 million over several years' time from foreign countries and entities in those countries. Number two is they hid the money. You know, that's what criminals do is the way that they disperse this money to all this Biden enterprises. Uh, They didn't pay their fair share of taxes. That's not being denied. And the punishment for Hunter Biden was not consistent with the crime. I don't think anybody can deny those, that those are the facts. And what I was really impressed with, though, were the witnesses themselves, that these were credible, honest patriots trying to do their duty, that these are career investigators and they had no axe to grind that I could tell. There was no, uh, you know, predetermined axe to grind with the Biden family. Even one of them was a Democrat. 
and they were willing to risk their career and their reputation to come forward. So I salute them for being great patriots. Yeah, so where does it go from here? What could you guys do on the Senate side? Nothing, because you don't have the majority, right? Yeah, yeah, elections have consequences. And so often that's the unfortunate answer to the question. As long as Chuck Schumer controls uh, the, the gavel and the agenda, as long as Bernie Sanders is chairman of the Health Committee or uh, Gary Peters of the HISGAC Committee, that would probably be the appropriate committee, would be the HISGAC Committee, uh, we're, we're, we're doing nothing over here on this. Yeah, I uh, can imagine. So we'll see if this is ever going to get any traction. Are you surprised that the other networks didn't carry it? Isn't that amazing? Uh, that, that that would be, I think, just uh, of all the explanation points, that, that would be it, is just this cover-up continues, the cover-up of, of Joe Biden's mistakes, his ineptness, let alone these potential criminal activities. Here's what Democrats were saying, cut 17. We can conclude that this Inspector Clouseau-style quest for something that doesn't exist has turned our committee into a theater of the absurd, an exercise in futility and embarrassment. Surprise, though, there there's seems to be a new level of hypocrisy here. We are here today because Donald Trump is exerting an influence campaign. I know the American people are confused because we're all confused what we're doing here. Nothing this majority has claimed about the president or his family has merit. Case closed. Nothing has merit. <laughs> right, Brian. It's Donald Trump's fault, right? Yeah. It's Donald Trump and Inspector Clouseau. That's whose fault, fault it is. But again, we laid out the facts at the beginning of this uh, interview that they, they cannot deny that these foreign entities paid the Biden cartel $17 million. million. They hid the money. Uh, they didn't pay their taxes. That's all. That's all established. So there is absolutely fire where there's smoke in this case. So the other thing we're, we're focused on, especially came up in the Twitter files, is some of the squelching of uh, opposing points of view when it came to the virus, the pandemic. And now yeah. I find out we're just now going to be cutting off funding to the Wuhan lab. Really? We're just now cutting off funding? Yeah, yeah, Brian. I, I've been calling for this for over two years now. That that uh, what what I knew two years ago was a direct trail between Dr. Fauci and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That a preponderance of evidence suggested that that virus was made and leaked from that particular lab. And we've been funding this type of research for two decades. That we actually taught uh, Dr. Dr. Shi over there, the Bat Lady. We taught her how to do this protein spikes on the virus. We taught her how to do viral gain of function. We knew the Chinese. Military was it was definitely involved that they were developing bioterrorism weapons, bioterrorism weapons. Excuse me, and and the WIV is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many entities involved in this viral gain of function that we are still funding, specifically EcoHealth. EcoHealth is in the middle. They are part of this gain of function mafia that funds. Uh, viral gain of function research someday. I'd love to come back and talk to you about Trinity Challenge. Trinity Challenge is an organization that's funded by the Chinese Communist Party, by Tencent, by the Gates Foundation, uh, indirectly through EcoHealth as well. Their goal is to collect the DNA of every human, animal, plant, and virus in the world figure out that genetic sequence, and then, you know, the good thing, we could do precision medicine, but there are so many bad things they could do with it as well, including develop bioterrorist weapons that could impact, say, the, the beef industry in Kansas, but they would have a vaccine for their cattle. You know, turkeys is probably, turkeys or pigs is probably the more obvious uh, potential victim that they would use bioterrorism weapons against us. 
So there is some testimony about how what we they think it's more of a natural occurrence. Well, through a Freedom of Information Act, Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi were able to get some communication between the CDC and NIH executives. And it's pretty apparent that there was a strong feeling that this thing did not come from a lab. Uh, listen to Schellenberger. The messages show they were engaged in politics. They were responding to what they called higher-ups, pressure from their bosses, and they were openly working to deceive reporters. Explosive findings that shows that the government, these government-funded scientists uh, waged a disinformation campaign, a propaganda campaign aimed at misleading the American people, and it worked. And then they demanded censorship of people who told the truth. So they're seeing this real-life communication. Anthony Fauci's right in the middle of it. Right. And, and folks would go to my website, marshall.senate.gov. We have a video that we did, I think, two years ago on a timeline that, that spells all this out. Look, from day one, Fauci is involved in the cover-up, that he is, he is orchestrating all the letters to come out in these magazines. And let me just explain why Fauci held such a heavy hand over these folks. He controlled $26 billion a year of funding. But beyond that, he, uh, he could leverage the Gates Foundation, Clinton Foundation. He could leverage dollars from the DOD, the State Department as well. So he was probably uh, controlling close to $100 billion of grants. And then if you got crossways with Anthony Fauci, he would basically, again, this gain-of-function mafia, he would professionally uh, eliminate you, professionally execute you. He would excommunicate you from the science community. He would make sure that your articles weren't going to be published, that he would shut down your funding as well. So he was intimately involved in this cover-up. Why? Because he did the funding that, that, that led to this uh, horrible, horrible pandemic. Wow. So this is all out there in text messages. And, you know, I, it would have been totally different uh, if it was Trump's vaccine. Trump came up with the vaccine, Operation Warp Speed. Every yeah. Democrat was saying, yeah, I don't think I'm going to take it. I think Donald Trump rushed it. All of a sudden, Trump loses the election and everyone's got to get a shot. The mandate's got to come down. When you analyze all this, do you think that was one of the big mistakes? The mandate? So many mistakes, too. Yeah, so many mistakes, Brian. Again, remember that the, virus, the vaccine was ready to go before the election, but they delayed it. You know, again, this, this deep, dark safer delayed it until after the election. I mean, there's so many rabbit holes we could go down here. Many, many mistakes. Probably the biggest mistake to me as a physician is that even though I've treated thousands of patients with viruses, pregnant patients with virus, I was not allowed to have a conversation with my OB patient and say, here's the pros and cons, the risk of benefits. My pediatrician wasn't able to talk to my daughter about my grandkids and say, here's the pros and cons. If any physician deviated from the Fauci uh, mantra, you were excommunicated. You were you were shamed. Your your license was was even threatened to be taken away if you if you veered at all from Anthony Fauci's dictums. So that was probably the biggest mistake because again the advice I gave my parents in their 80s is way different than the advice I gave my grandchildren. My grandchildren did not take the vaccine. I did not think the benefits outweighed the risk. But my parents, I was having them stand in line to make sure they were the first ones to get the vaccine. I think those were the right decisions then, and I think it was the right decision now. Uh, very interesting. Lastly, the Senate, you guys desperately want it back. There's rumors that Senator Murkowski is going to flip parties. Have you heard that? Oh, my gosh. No, Brian, I'm not. Uh, that's uh, the scariest thing I've heard today. Uh, <laughs> she and I are working on several critical issues. Let's let's hope and pray that's not true. I think there's just a great chance, though, that, um, you know, maybe Senator or, or Manchin would come our way. So we'll see. All right. So on the Senate side, uh, Donald Trump has indicated uh, when it comes to Montana 
indicated to Congressman Matt Rosendale and Alex Mooney in West Virginia that he's unlikely to endorse either man in their Senate bid, which would clear the way for Jim Justice uh, and Tim Sheehy. They might have won anyway, but Trump's saying, I'm not going to go with you guys. So he's trying to streamline the process. Those are two key seats you have to win if you want to get the majority. You know, absolutely. And uh, President Trump's going to do what President Trump's uh, going to do. Um, I do think that the people from Montana, the Republicans from Montana should pick their candidate. I think uh, the people from West Virginia, the good people, West Virginia should pick their Republican candidate. Look, we're going to win West Virginia. We are going to absolutely West Virginia. It's going to be a a, a skunking over there. I think Montana is wide open. It's 50-50. We need a good, strong candidate. And that's what the process is for. And I'm going to respect the process. And personally, I'm, I'd like to see um, people in Washington, D.C. have less of a play in those in those primaries and then come in hard, whoever the candidate is, who the Republican mm-hmm. candidate in, then let's unite and come in strong. So our, our energies are or our clean energies are uh, John Kerry went over to China, came back empty handed oh when it came to trying to convince them to stop doing a coal plant a day and lessen their emissions. Are you surprised? No, not not at all. Until we stand up to China, uh, they're going to keep doing whatever they want to do. They right now they know that they are the biggest bully in the room. That Joe Biden is running from them with his tail between his legs. That he's completely reactive. So Joe Biden has lost his reputation on the national stage. And again, this is uh, part of President Xi's uh, grand plan over the next two hundred years for China to be the world power. Again, folks in America need to realize that America is a baby. And China looks at these last 70 years of American dominance as, as, as an aberrance to, the, to world history that China is the rightful uh, owner of the crown. So there's no respect from Xi to our leader. That's why it's so important. Again, elections have consequences. We, have, we need someone who's going to have the fortitude to stand up to Wall Street and President Xi because let's, let's face it. There are so many of us that benefit from doing business with China. It's easier said than done, but we need someone who's tough on China. All right, uh, Senator Marshall, thanks so much. Always appreciate it. Yeah, Brian, good conversation today. Everyone be safe. Thank you so much. You got it. one 866 We'll find out if you're more to know, if you need to know more next. It's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Well, as you all know, today is National Hot Dog Day. And uh, perhaps you also know that hot dog is my favorite meat. I love hot dogs. Uh, I love them in buns. I love them outside of buns. I love them with baked beans. I just like hot dogs. It's the best you know, best meat there is, without question. So to all of you who, like me, are celebrating uh, National Hot Dog Day, Uh, Congratulations to you, and may there be many, many more hot dogs served in our wonderful land. Was yesterday National Hot Dog Day? I did not know this. Apparently so, and right under your radar. Is that why Eric was off? He was celebrating. Is that why you were off? Eric was eating a lot of meat. We happened to have hot dogs over the campfire the day before, so I... So that was it. Because I count. Yeah. Okay, I should know. I should. I'm going to just circle that on my calendar. Maybe I'll take off too then. But you don't even eat hot dogs. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, but you know what? I'll have chicken hot dogs. How I do don't eat taste? meat. They're terrible. <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, I appreciate it. But it is odd for him to be that enthusiastic about hot dogs. But when you think about it, it's really not. He doesn't <laughs> drink caffeine. He doesn't have alcohol. Like it's one of the few things he can get really excited about. Right. It's true. 
Are, are they still holding on to that? Do you know? To my knowledge, yes. All right, I mean, Eric, think about- do you know? He doesn't want to get himself in trouble. All right. So the other day, uh, earlier today, I had a chance to, and he's going to come on the show. I, I think we broke the ice with him. The commissioner of Major League Soccer, uh, fast-growing league, you know how well they're doing, 60,000 over, uh, you know, 60,000 over Atlanta, regular basis, Portland, Seattle, uh, what they're doing in almost every major market. They're struggling in New Jersey, but, uh, and they're building a, they're building a stadium uh, for NYC FC right outside City Field in New York, so they're finally going to get a 25,000-seat stadium here. They're playing at Yankee Stadium now. So they signed Messi, and, and it is similar to Pele in the 70s, but soccer was brand new. I mean, nobody played soccer. It wasn't even in gym class. You had uh, first-generation first, uh, immigrants coming over, knew how to play, and, and that's when I started playing in 1972. And I literally I would have to explain to people what the sport is, let alone watching me or know how to put shin pads on. So now they, this league starts in 95. It fails. They said we can't launch yet. Then they, they started right in 96. It fell apart a few years later. A few owners bought all the other teams that were going bankrupt. They sustained it. Phil Anschutz is a real hero there. He's a bit one of the richest guys in the country. And then they get the best player in the world. Here's his response to getting messy. Cut 39. When we became official... What were your thoughts when he said, I choose you? You know, it was, uh, it was really remarkable to see the, the trajectory, the momentum of Major League Soccer, the best player, I think, in the history of the game, saying this is my league of choice. So it's pretty cool. You know, that's not something that happens every day. So it's pretty cool. 25,000 people in the pouring rain show up in Miami just for him to wave. So I think he starts tomorrow. It'll be exciting. Uh, Don Garber also responded to... Cristiano Ronaldo, another guy, one of the few people who has clearly got a better body, better player, and and clearly more handsome than me. One of the few people. Am I right? Don't sell yourself short, Brian. Okay, we're even. Okay. Should we just say we're even? Plus, okay. he has a bit of a checkered past. <laughs> My past? Oh, no, his, oh, his past. Yeah. Oh, okay. So he chose to go to Saudi Arabia to play in a league for, I think, close to like $500 million, some ridiculous amount, and some other players followed him there. So when Messi had a choice to go to a bigger deal to go there, they're kind of rivals because they both scored a ton of goals for their teams. Uh, he plays in Portugal. So when he had a chance to go there, Messi says, no, I'll take less money. I'm going to Miami. I just want to be in America. So Ronaldo said, Saudi Arabia, better league than the MLS. So I asked Garber about it. Cristiano Ronaldo decides to go to the Saudi league. They're now done. And this is what he said about Messi going to the MLS. He said the Saudi league is better than the MLS. Now all the players are coming here. In one year, more top players will be coming to Saudi Arabia. What's your answer to, to Ronaldo? <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm not going to get into the, yes, the Ronaldo thing, Brian. No way. Oh, listen, what I'll say is that, that the, this is the global game. And, and the fact that you've got leagues that are competing against each other, you've got two of the great players in the world, though the, the best player ever is deciding right. to play in Major League Soccer. Our league is great. We're very excited about it. I'm happy for Cristiano. I hope he has fun in Saudi Arabia. Almost had a headline. It would have been great. I mean, for him to say, how dare you do But he could end up here. I, well, maybe not. Uh, I just think that Beckham opened up the door. Not many people ran through it as megastars. More and more people are going to be paying attention to it. I don't love the Apple deal because they're on Apple, but so many people don't go to Apple to watch TV on a daily basis. You're still going to ESPN and Fox Sports. I'd love to see that thing going on and back to regional networks. I'm Brian Kilmeade. By the way, watch the Women's World Cup. It's on Fox. Started.
from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.